Science. Hello and welcome to Probably Science. My name's Andy Wood. I'm Matt Kirshen. How's it going, Andy? It's, oh man, I'm living in the lap of luxury here. You're on a new couch. <laughs> new car, new couch. Yeah. It's not bad. It's a. It was a dog that. Do, it was a dog that owned this couch. A person with a dog owned this couch. Andy gave uh, some money to a dog that he found yes. in. A, <laughs> Andy went into someone's house. I made a wish. Gave some money to a dog yeah. and then left with their couch. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I think that, like you were saying, if this was new, if I if I had to get this new, it probably would have been in the thousands, right? So. Yeah, it's a nice big couch. Use furniture is a... The middle section turns into a bed. It's not bad. For anyone who needs to stay somewhere in LA, every listener, as you know, is oh, always yeah. welcome to stay at that, Andy's house. That has always been our promise to you, the listener. It's <laughs> a, a warm bed and a, a pint of, of Lagunitas beer. Oh, I forgot to tell you, we got some Lagunitas beer. <laughs> oh, I, I, I know that because I saw the email that you sent to the Lagunitas person thanking them. I'm yet to see any of this beer, but... Uh, well, I have some cases in my closet if you want, but it's delicious. It is Love. still, it is as always, the official beer of the Probably Science Podcast, as well, long-term listeners will know. It's a very delicious beer, and occasionally they throw us some free stuff. Yeah, I got some IPA Pilsner. I got a great sour beer. Um, yeah, if any of you guys are drinking it for the first time... Um, Tweet about it and post a picture of the of the beer. I remember last time we plugged them, there were some listeners that had never tried it before over in Australia who were like, this is really good. I'm like, yeah, it is. It is. It's a, it's a very well-balanced flavor profile. It's delicious. Um, I don't know which of their taglines they're using these days, but I know one of them is uh, beer, beer Speaks, People Mumble. So maybe that's what it is. Yeah, Lagunitas. Let's say that. So they're not beer using speaks. my It's a Well-Balanced Flavor Profile? A, <laughs> wait, are you... Did you just look that up, or is it? A- no, that was just me. Just oh, yeah, now, it's it just, a well That's how good profile. I am. They yeah. should employ me as a copywriter. That just—I just riffed that. That was just straight off. Hey, oh, we yeah. have a guest. Yes, we do. Hi. That is the voice of both hilarious comedian and my birthday sake, Sharon Houston. That's right. We're both May third. We are. Oh my gosh, I forgot of, about that. What is a flavor profile? Here. What is that? That is so pretentious. <laughs> is it the what's array a pro- of flavors? Wouldn't you just call it a flavor instead of a flavor no, because profile? It's combined, it's combined. It's it's like like if you were to put if you were able to put the flavors through some kind of mass spectrometer right. or what, through a what, prism, and it get, yeah, breaks yeah. up into its Which, constituent flavors that hit you at fre- different times. Okay, different so flavor frequencies. That, tell me uh, the difference between a Lagunitas, Ganitas, Lagunitas, Lagunitas uh, flavor profile and Bud Light. Well, I mean, like an IPA and a, and, a, and a lager are completely different. Like, from what I understand, the top level taxonomy of beers, I could be wrong. I think all beers are either ales or lagers. Right. And there's a few exceptions. Like, I think Anchor Steam is somehow both an ale and a lager. It has to do with, like, whether the it's like top fermenting or bottom fermenting or something. But I think, yeah, everything's either an ale or a lager. So, all the light, um, you know, easy drinking stuff, those are varieties of lagers. So, like, a Bud Light is, is a lager. Is a lager, but, but this Pilsners is an are ale. Lagers. This is an ale. And it's an IPA, which is really hoppy. You would know. I mean, you've had IPAs. It's very hoppy, yeah. which means it's quite bitter. But the Lagunitas, I quite like. I don't like the ones that are just bitter for the sake of them. But this one has, you know, it's, it's got other flavors in there that soften the bitterness. And it's a very pleasant drink. There we go. That's enough. Oh, that that's enough lovely. plugging. All right, that. I just want—I just wanted to know what a profile. No, uh, yeah, I mean, flavor listen, profile no, I was is. being that's intentionally all. pretentious. <laughs> we're, we're pretty woke here. I'm against flavor profiling in general. Okay. I don't, like, Andy doesn't even see flavor. I don't see flavor exactly. You know that about me. <laughs> so open-minded, Sharon. How so are liberal. You? How are you? Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm fantastic. We um like to ask our guests this before we get into the stories of the week. What, if anything, is your background in science? Uh, okay. Um, 
I've always wanted to be, okay, my background in science has more to do with like weather science. Uh, growing up in Miami, I loved tracking hurricanes and I always wanted to work for the National Hurricane oh. Center. Yeah. Um, That's I, a new one. Yeah, I love that. I used to actually, our, our grocery store in Miami is called Publix and I would they would hand out hurricane maps. So everybody in Miami would track the hurricane on a paper hurricane map. So I would set it up in my bedroom and I would set my stuffed animals around it because they were my audience. They were like my coworkers <laughs> and my audience and I would just track the hurricane with little red pins. <laughs> and you know, and that's that was my favorite thing and I love going outside and I love looking for tornadoes because we would have water spouts a lot in Miami. Oh really? Yeah, that's over Biscayne cool. Bay. So when the weather was I have a scar I don't know if it's this one or this still from running from a tornado and I, I was I had my I was walking my bike and my mom's like get in turn around look behind you I turned around tornado I started screaming ate shit skid my knee and I still have the scar wow mm-hmm. so hang on what was did you have some kind of storm shelter in your house no, what we would do is we would actually board up our house really well with two by fours, with uh, plywood held on to the concrete with two by fours into the stucco. So we were the only house in the neighborhood that actually like prepared, like really prepared for hurricanes. Like Every- the, the, the two by fours were always there, and you could just attach um, plywood to them. No, there were or? bolts in the in the walls in the oh, okay. in the stucco bolts. So then you could take the two by four that would be in the garage that already had a bolt on the other side, screw it in, and you, the ply it would hold the plywood down. Oh, okay. Yeah. You wouldn't have to. It wouldn't have to like permanently mar that much of the exterior because it always has these. No, that, that makes it sense. did, but it was just like a. It was just like a bolt hole. I mean, yeah. that makes sense. So it's all sort of pre-drilled and ready just to screw back in again, like Correct. assembly self, like a self-assembly furniture kind of thing. Yes, exactly. Awesome. So uh, that we were the only neighbor that you know. Of course, we never had a bad hurricane, and we had left Miami uh, in '92 when Andrew came, and Andrew leveled the whole neighborhood. Oh, Which so neighborhood even, of Miami was it? It was in Perrine in South Florida. So uh, we would always escape to my grandparents' house in Little Havana because there you're, hot, you're on high ground. The houses are so strong. Uh, they're built in 1951. They're all poured concrete. So they're not going nowhere. Yeah. Um, whereas I lived in this little subdivision. It was right off of Galloway Road in South, like Kendall-ish area. And um, it was one of those subdivisions that popped up in the 80s where they just kind of slap. You'd, you pick house number three, four, five, or six. You know, like they were all models. And so all the houses kind of looked the same, and they were just thrown together. And Andrew, like, le- it looked like a bomb went Damn. off. I forgot. Was Andrew worse than Hugo? Which was the bigger? Way worse. Oh, really? Oh, yes. I thought Hugo was, like, the big... No, it was Andrew. Oh, okay. Yeah, Andrew destroyed Miami. And then... That's... Hugo was bad. Andrew was horrific. And that's the last time something really bad has hit Miami until now? Yes. Okay. Have you checked in with, obviously, uh, family and friends? Because everyone... Uh, They're all good. Their houses are good? Yeah. Wow. I guess because Miami didn't get it as hard as they were expecting, right? No, Key West got destroyed. And that's the thing. I don't know what happened. I have some distant cousins that live in Key West. Yeah. And I have some family members that are buried there because that's where the Cubans, the Cuban side of my family, they came from Cuba to Key West, then Key West to Miami, Miami to Tampa, and then went back to Miami. So, uh, but my cousin David owns uh, a pharmacy or did own a pharmacy there. Now it's a Walgreens or a Rite Aid. I think he just sold out. Uh, But it was this uh, pharmacy in the southernmost point of Key West. Oh, like near that buoy that has that sign. Yes. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We went there for a swim team training trip for some reason. I don't know why we picked Key West. It's a really weird. It's place a really to... weird because you have to take a puddle jumper there. And uh, no, I think we. Oh wait. Did you drive? It's you... a long drive from Miami to Key West. I guess you must have flown. Yeah, but you can drive. They all. They all yeah. have Connecting. Um, but yeah, it's also, It's not a very. Um, there's no. There's no beaches. It's kind of a. No, there's no beach. It's, it's like rocky. rocks and then yeah, yeah and then yeah. water. It's very strange. 
But it's popular. The kids love it. It's a big drinking. Yeah, it's a big party town. It's a big if, party if town. If you're an Ernest Hemingway lookalike, it's uh, that's where you got to go, I guess. Yeah, right? yeah. There's like a big contest there every year. Or yeah, something? there's a big contest. Yeah. If you like polydactyl cats, you can go look at those. Oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> hey, <laughs> I wait, never... are you being serious about the contest? Yeah. yeah, they have an Ernest that's Hemingway. Where Hemingway yeah, lived. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, I knew, I knew Ernest Hemingway lived there, and I know you can go to his house there. I just thought you. I thought. You made up the contest and you yes ended it. Like I thought. No, there's no. a Hemingway lookalike contest there. <laughs> like you'll see a lot of Hemingway lookalikes just on the street there, or at least twenty years ago. How many of the people in the contest knew that they were entering that contest? Right. <laughs> How many? Uh, probably half. Probably all. Um, so that's it. So that's my, my science background is I, I really am weather. into weather and, and weather patterns and temperatures and, you know, uh, that kind of environmental studies. So exciting time to be alive as a fan of extreme weather. We're you know, it really is. I actually was part of like an environmental studies program for like AP students in Miami. And oh. we got to go take classes at, uh, at Miami-Dade Community College. But it's like a really good community college. And they had the first ever greenhouse. So it was like a green, not what? first ever greenhouse. It was the first ever house run on solar. Uh, panels oh, green, in Miami. Oh, green house. Green like house. house. Not Got the it. first ever greenhouse. I'm seems, like, um, no, not that. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, but yeah, so it was really great because we got to be in the solar powered house and, you know, see what it was like to just be, just to, to be self-sustainable, yeah. you know, in this little property at, at the college. It was cool. cool. Yeah. What do you think about the appropriation of a dangerous thing as a mascot for a school? Like the Miami Hurricanes. And then when a hurricane actually comes and then, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, is that a weird way to, uh, to like, retro, to get ahead of the, like, we're going to take this back as a thing that we rally behind. Like, go Canes. Like, well, that's the thing that's going to destroy the city someday. And yeah, it does totally. Every, every 30 years destroy the city. I don't know. I, yeah. I, I, I mean, I didn't go to University of Miami. I did go to a lot of the games, though, because they play at the Orange Bowl, and my grandparents live right by there. But um, I think it's, I mean, don't you want to be like a hurricane when you're coming to play another team? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. But then it's like when the city gets leveled by one, then the, the next season, do you still have to go? Go hurricanes. Yeah. Right. You have to go like, go canes. Yeah. yeah. But what about wolverines yeah, are going canes. extinct? Yeah. Are you guys going to get nervous? About, like, what if a wolverine goes extinct or is on the endangered list for Michigan? Yeah. yeah, yeah. What if, uh, if it's an actual wolverine attack, it would suddenly become not as cool. Is that a thing? Is a wolverine an actual animal or is it just a character? Oh no, it's a thing. Yeah. 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 It's like a really angry little. Um, I mean, they're not very big, but they're pretty vicious, I think. I don't know if they're indigenous to Michigan or not. They must be. No? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. They've picked it if they aren't. Um, I've never I mean, seen it's one. It's very hard to get up a picture of it that isn't... The uh, X-Men character. Exactly that. Oh, yeah. But you could go go blue Wolverines, and then you might get a Wolverine. Or you're just going to get a bunch of drunk fans. One of the two. Wait a second. Wolverine, or a picture animal. of the Sklar Brothers. If you, if you add our animal to the search, that's that what a Wolverine sense. Oh, like. there. Oh, it's so cute. Yeah, it's cute, but like massive. It looks like a dick. Look at that. Look it looks at like a little tiny mouth. bear. No, I know. Well, you don't want to piss it off. This is what it looks like when it plays Ohio. Oh, Ohio State. Why Wolverines are so rare in the U.S. and what's being done about it? See? I guess I didn't know. That makes sense why I haven't... Uh, this is an article from last year on USA Today saying a rancher killed the first confirmed wolverine in North Dakota in over a century, turning a spotlight on an elusive species. Wait, a mere 300 or so wolverines exist in the continental U.S.? That's it. I had no idea. Yeah. Wow. Uh, the North, North American wolverine informally called a mountain devil, which I also haven't heard. I love that. <laughs> Largest member of the weasel family. Weighing around 40 pounds, a small beast is capable of fending off larger bears and wolves. 300 is a very small number. It oh. looks like it could fend off a bear. Yeah, those teeth. Yeah. Vicious. Vicious. Yeah, have so few survived. Looks like a chupacabra. 
<laughs> they're goat sucker. <laughs> Where else do they live? Are there just 300 of them in America, but then loads of them elsewhere? Or um, I'm, I'm, I'm looking that up real quick. Oh, it's also called a skunk bear. I haven't heard oh, that. Oh, that's weird. And also called a quick hatch and also called a glutton. Just glutton. Yeah. According to Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, it's found primarily in the remote reaches of the northern boreal forests and subarctic and alpine tundra of the Northern Hemisphere, with the greatest numbers in Northern Canada. Oh, wow. Okay. Northern Canada. And throughout Western Russia and Siberia. Oh, good. Uh, there you good. go. And it's, it's a mustard. So it's not a bear. It's a, it's a mustard, which is the group of mammals that includes things like weasels, badgers, otters, mink. Uh, it looks like it would be part of that family. Yep. But it looks a bit like a... Like a so for those of you who haven't seen one, imagine something that looks a bit like a weasel, but a bit like a bear. Yeah, it does. It does. It looks a lot like a, a bear, a little a weasel bear. Yeah. Like a hyena weasel bear. There we go. This has been Wolverine Corner brought to you by Sorry, University everybody. of Michigan. Well, do we have a good animal story that we could segue neatly into? I think we do. We got an email that was uh, pretty pretty succinct from um Was this the Victor one from Di Victor Julian Di Piero by any chance? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he said, uh, duck penis article. Enjoy. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was. Do ducks have penises? Well, ducks, uh, yes. ducks definitely have penises. So it turns out sexual competition among ducks wreaks havoc on penis size. Yeah, when forced is... to compete for mates, some birds develop longer penises and others almost nothing at all. Male ducks respond to sexual competition by growing either an extra long penis or a nub of flesh, a new study finds. The unusual phenomena occurred in two species studied, the lesser scop and the ruddy duck. It suggests that penis <laughs> it sounds size... sounds like, you ruddy duck. <laughs> you rud She's a right ruddy duck, that one. <laughs> you ruddy ducks. <laughs> It suggests that penis size, in line with many traits and behaviors meant to impress or allow impregnation of the opposite sex, involves a trade-off between the potential to reproduce and to survive. Patricia Brennan, an evolutionary biologist at Mount Holyoke College in South Hadley, Massachusetts, compared the penises of ducks kept in male-female pairs to those housed with multiple males per female. The findings are published in a study on, on the September 20th uh, edition of The Auk Ornithological Advances. Um, you have your subscription, right? Yes, of okay, course, yeah. of course. Um, I, 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 I used to subscribe, but I just uh, I, I pick and choose now. I cherry pick. <laughs> I, I did. I whitelisted them from AdBlocker online, which they were happy I did, so I can read the stuff. Um, if they were alone with a female, the males just grew a normal-sized penis, but if there were other males around, they had the ability to change dramatically. So evolution must be acting on the ability to be plastic, the ability to invest only in what is needed in your current circumstance. Because evolutionary success relies on reproduction, genitals are adapted to meet the varied circumstances that every animal faces. Some male ducks, for example, have penises in the shape of corkscrews to navigate the labyrinth-like vaginas of their female counterparts. This is something we've talked about on the show before. Are you aware of this, Sharon? Some, the corkscrew penis? It was, uh, yeah, there's sort of an arms race of, between the female and the male ducks where they were, they were generating ever hard-to-navigate vaginas evolving those and in return the ma the male ducks were evolving increasingly elaborately shaped penises to get inside them oh wow what's the advantage to the female becoming d more difficult I, th I think it's yeah, to right. give her the ability to be more choosy about her potential mates but and the male in return because I, I think i think there's a lot of um unwanted sexual advances in the duck world I think in the, the animal world, I would probably yeah, but I think, oh, yeah, I think totally. ducks in particular have a tendency to be among the more, really? among the less consensual of copulation. But there's so many ducks. Well, yeah, there are. Uh, does it only happen with certain species of duck, or all ducks? Th no, have this, this is this is evolution. certain species of ducks have this corkscrew penis and okay. matching hole. 
So, uh, yeah, <laughs> I think I think the female duck wants to choose the male duck that they think would be the most viable, but the male duck is just trying to sort of get it in there. So the female duck is evolving things to make it harder for the male duck to just get it in there. Okay. Well, I know that it's very uncomfortable for a bird to lay eggs. Oh, really? Yeah, that's why when a well chicken lays it? an egg and it goes, it's because it hurts. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't you mean to do no, that. You, you know that for a don't, fact? Don't, I do, I don't know, ever I do. apologize for that. Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, no, I know that for a fact because I asked these girls that, that were in the AGR department in Northern California, at UC Santa Barbara maybe, and uh, I, I asked them because, you know, I hate that they take the baby cows away from the mama cow and quarantine it so that it can learn to be independent because I don't, whatever. Uh, but I asked about the chickens and she goes, it's very uncomfortable for a hen to lay eggs. Oh, I guess, yeah. um, and I'm like, yeah, that totally makes sense. And why hadn't I thought that? Why before? does it totally make sense? I mean, just because the noise sounds like a pained noise, so well, it makes sense. That's what it's for. I have a vagina, and if I had to spit out an egg every, you know, several eggs a day, it would hurt. It would be, a, it, I would hate it. But what's the evolutionary you, know, you get advantage used to it over time? Be painful. No, I don't see. I don't know. If the, I don't think there's an evolutionary advantage. I'm saying that maybe that's why these ducks are like, I'm going to make my vagina as screwed up as possible so he can't put his dick yeah. in me because I don't want these eggs coming out. Mm-hmm. It hurts. Yeah. You know? And by yeah. them, you, sort of evolution that they that just happens to them. But uh, can I so, get, go ahead? No, go. What I wanted say? to be clear about the story. Yes. So when the ducks are when the male ducks are around a lot of female ducks, they either grow a large penis or a nub. We're Is, a, was that right? Yeah, we're, we're about to get. Okay, so. Yeah, so uh, it was actually an earlier study by Brennan, the same scientist. She found in an earlier study that females' anatomy evolved to prevent access to undesirable males who force copulation. Uh, To mate successfully with their chosen partners, female ducks assume a posture that allows males to enter them fully and deposit sperm near the eggs. So that's that's why they have this sort of weirdly evolved anatomy and weird posture that that makes it harder for the males. So they get to pick which males become the father of their kids um however evolutionary changes in the sizes of body parts are generally thought to happen over generations not within an individual's lifetime brennan wondered whether ducks might buck this trend because some species penises emerge anew every breeding season i did not know that and degenerate afterwards imagine similarly acorn barnacles uh which are hermaphroditic uh shelled sea creatures which cement to rocks generate their penises only when it's time to mate because they use their penises to grope for other barnacles to inseminate, the organ's length depends on the proximity of a barnacle's neighbors. So, Brennan... So that's that's already awesome. So, like, the further fantastic. away the neighbor is, the more you're like, I'm going to need a long dick this season. <laughs> I just yeah, the idea I'm of, like, how, need... how's this year's dick coming in? Just like, it's like a, you know... But think of how fabulous it would be to not have a dick for half of the year. Um, as long as you do, that's the thing. Is like you're just hoping every year it comes back. I would well, definitely yeah. get a lot of scripts finished. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's the writing season, and then there's penis season. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I just hope to finish this screenplay before my dick comes. I'm in. telling you, you guys would be so much more comfortable in pants. <laughs> that's true. That's that is. That's, that's all point. I think about. Like, that's how true. do you guys? Lot, how do you guys deal with pants? It's a lot of shifting. Well, you should be I wearing mean, skirts. Really, we should be wearing pants. It's more about the balls. That's also true. The, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, maybe men should be in kilts. Yeah. yeah, men should be in kilts. Women pants makes sense. Arab, you guys know Arabs have got it sorted. Yeah, they just wear a thing. Yeah, a dress. And then you you spend some time in the Middle East, and you realize exactly why. I, I, it's hot as shit. Your balls stick instantly to your legs. Yeah, so you don't need pants. 
Did you, you ever, a, did you ever have to wear a jock strap for any athletic things growing up, Matt? I was very rarely athletic in my class, <laughs> yeah. so no. I, I, I was not that athletic, but yeah, the few times I did, I was like, what, what is this for again? Like, I'm not talking about a cup, which makes sense for like hockey. You got to sleep. Yeah, because like, I had to wear hit. one of those when I, like, I did cricket at school. The cup? Or, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just don't understand a jock strap. It's, it's never. <laughs> Brits call it a box. Oh, a box. They call it but a box? This, yeah, but a cup, same thing. Mm. It's for those of you who don't know. It's a hardened piece of plastic that covers your junk, so yeah. that if something it's like a cod piece, a, a modern cod yeah. piece, it's to avoid yeah. Well, yeah. What is it? a ball it is a hitting you. Yeah, speed. totally. Yeah. Uh, okay, so so seasonal penises are a thing for some species. Um, That's interesting. That's really interesting. Brennan yeah. and her colleagues fenced off habitats so that ducks would live either in pairs or in groups with almost twice as many males as females for two breeding seasons over the course of two years. The lesser scops, which is one of the species, uh, grew longer penises when they were forced to compete for females than when they were coupled up. A large reproductive organ likely improves their chances of fertilizing an egg. Okay, so so far so so explainable. That's what you m- might have expected. Yeah. Mm-hmm. More, com- more competition, more dick. Right, and uh, and I and do the female ducks respond to the guy with the bigger dick, or did they just grow a bigger dick to make it easier to fertilize? I th- that's what it is. I think it, it's not. It's not that the females are going for the bigger dick it's that the ma- the male ducks are going in there whatever but the longer dick has the better chance of fertilizing reaching the egg right uh however 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 the, <laughs> the ruddy ducks more complicated annie mm-hmm. yeah uh, so during the first year only the largest males in the groups grew long penises about 18 centimeters each pretty pretty long for a duck as a as a like that's a, a ratio long... of your body length that's like that's a hell of a dick is that probably like that's a hell of a dick for do a they duck? have any pictures of them Six probably not inches or something um it's about three centimeters 2.7 to an inch um so yeah during the yeah. first year only the largest that's, males in that's the group. seven inches oh that's it's like half that's the ducks, seven inches half the duck's body length some men don't have a seven inch dick yeah no all of them do well that's that's true that's, that's, that's science fact that's a hell of a I mean that is a hefty dick for a duck that's it that's right there there yeah. it is oh my god it really does look like a corkscrew yeah did you did you open a, a um, incognito tab before oh no you're looking at the picture in this article yes. on nature.com yes yes yeah okay so um, yeah the first year the largest males in the group grew long penises um, whereas smaller males developed half centimeter stubs in the second year, smaller males grew normal-sized penises, but they lasted for just five weeks, whereas the largest males kept their penises for three months. <laughs> this is so... Cr- How did I not know about seasonal dick? Like, I, can't <laughs> I know. That's the bit, out of all of this story, that's the bit that has been the most surprising to me, is the fact that, Never heard of that. ducks grow and shed their penises on a s- Do they basis. shed them or do they fall off? I think it says degenerate. Oh, so it just kind of shrivels in, maybe. So it's just like you're just sort of... I don't know what... Well, I, don't, I sh- wish I knew. Sh- there's shrinkage for part of the year, kind of? Is yeah, it, I'm not sure. Same? I don't know either. Okay, so clues uh, clues may lie in the drama of ruddy duck life. The birds have some of the largest penis-to-body ratios found in nature, with penises sometimes longer than their bodies. Jesus. Um, Brendan says, I can't imagine they could grow any longer. <laughs> the birds have also been known to fight to the death, which suggests that smaller ruddy ducks might be too stressed to develop penises normally. Oh, wow. <laughs> Bullying may increase stress hormones, and those could counteract the effects of androgen hormones that control penis growth. Which, by the way, only leads to worse bullying. I know. It's like, it's a vicious <laughs> cycle. <laughs> you bully him enough, he doesn't grow a dick, then he gets... 
Then you pants the duck and yeah. Uh, I feel bad for the Rudy ducks. I know. Uh, this response to stress could be adaptive. The same androgen hormones that trigger penis growth every season in birds also underlie coloration. They cause the duck's feathers to turn from dull brown to chestnut when it's time to breed, and their bills go from gray to bright blue. The females, To females, the wardrobe change signals a male's readiness. To neighboring males, it foreshadows a fight. So Brennan says she thinks uh, the small ones go through it quickly so there's less danger of getting beaten up. Oh, wow. That makes sense again. So that the, male, the males, the, the alpha males in the group, the largest males, can be all like... I'm ready to breed. I'm going to be ready to breed for a while and look at this massive dick. And the <laughs> younger, uh, the smaller males in the group are just going to have to sort of sneak it in by, you know, befriending with the use females personality. first. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Helping them like with people. their homework. Yeah. <laughs> it sucks those ready... They're always getting Walking friends. Walking them home. They're getting friends <laughs> all the time, those ruddy ducks. They're just... The ladies are just telling them about the guy who stood him up. And... sick to death of that big ruddy duck. <laughs> oh, I just called it a ruddy duck. It's a ruddy duck. It's a ruddy duck. It's a ruddy duck. Uh, so yeah, the study is, quote, really interesting, says Charlie Cornwallis. Uh, an evolutionary, evolutionary biologist. biologist. Yeah. Swedish guy. Yeah. Charlie says, this suggests there is a cost to having a large penis because individuals are investing according to the competition they face from other males. Uh, few studies have investigated the effect of environmental and social conditions on penis size and that these evolutionary trade-offs could be more common than imagined um that's so crazy <laughs> it's just this if this article does end on an yeah, odd that's note a strange, yeah that's a strange way because it just brings in fab <laughs> picnicking families are you serious yeah it just goes families who picnic at the livingston ripley waterfowl conservancy in litchfield connecticut where the study was conducted overlook the birds bargains as well People watch the ducks on the weekends but have no idea what's really going on, Brendan says. <laughs> I now have a love-hate relationship with ducks. Wait, what does she hate about it? It's yeah, just, it the, is what it is. It, yeah. <laughs> There's nothing to hate about it. Well, I mean, the maybe... Bullying? I yeah, know, the bullying? Yeah, the bullying, maybe. the bullying, I think. If you're studying ducks all day and you're like, ah, oh, these ducks. Yeah. Well, I just would hate that they'd fight to the death. That's what bums me out. And also, Brendan, you know, she's a female scientist and science is still a very male-dominated field. You're probably already sick of, like, louder, larger men drowning out. Mm-hmm. That's true. Possibly higher quality from... Yeah, and there's a lot of duck splaining that goes on yeah. in these, <laughs> these ponds. Um, a lot of corkscrew dick swinging. <laughs> <laughs> Can't recognize them because they keep changing color. You don't know who to be pissed off at. Is a drake... Is that a, is that a term for a male duck of any species? A drake? Or am I crazy? Or mallard? Wait, what's what are what are I those I thought a things? mallard was a type of duck. Maybe it is. I I I, I don't uh, don't know ducks. I should have uh, googled that before. Um, oh yeah, mallard is a species. It looks like. Oh, it is. Um. Oh, those are my favorite. They're so pretty. And Drake is a male male. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Females are hens or just ducks. Yeah. Nice. All right. Well, today we learned about seasonal dick. Isn't that interesting? Is this the only species that has seasonal dick? Oh no, be, uh, no the I barnacles. A, yeah, the barnacles. Yeah, yeah. So there's got to be more people that I, just grow a penis. And I wish that was like you. I wish men were like that. I think it would be if 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 it were a thing that everyone had, and if it was kind of like a, just like a, a, a lottery system, just the luck of the draw, and right? Season what comes in. I, I like the idea. I don't know. I, you I, never the, know what this year's going to be. But now I'm, you know, I say that, and now I think it would suck because that means that you guys would only have dicks th- during certain months. So I would definitely get pregnant. Like everybody would definitely get pregnant. <laughs> That's a good point. You know what I, I mean? I bet it would be <laughs> nature being what it is. I bet it would stagger, or maybe not. I don't know. Maybe it, maybe everyone comes in at the same time. And it doesn't stagger in the period. duck world. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. Right. I think there is like. A duck fucking season and then uh 
Yeah, people fucking is 24-7, 365. Yeah, isn't there a mating season for people? I know there's ovulation and stuff, but there's no like mating season. There's yeah, no. People ovulate at different times. Yeah, yeah. And, ovulate, and the ovulation cycle is many times a year rather than... Yeah. Yeah, it's 12 times a year. I mean, so it's like, but it would be interesting if, if we did have that, if we, it was cyclical, like only three months out of the year, men are, their dicks are growing in, get ready, girls, hold it down, you know, run for your life. <laughs> like we would all, like everybody would get pregnant. And dickless time, like no one, no one shaves their legs, no one wears makeup. Yeah, no one wears makeup. Season, Nobody's getting like, their snatch wax. Yeah, They're just yeah. like, whatever. He doesn't have a dick. What's he going to do? <laughs> yeah. I'm right here. <laughs> do you have to put it like that? Just saying. Uh, so I'm glad that it's that's all, not the case. So it's all rom coms, and then like summer hits, and then right. I mean, like yeah, what, totally. You just, you just like snuggle up with your dickless partner and watch Love Actually. You, you get through right. a lot of box sets. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's yeah, he's he has no choice. He has no penis. I can't what, believe what? there hasn't been a like um, dystopian futuristic sci-fi novel written about this. Uh, oh no, women love dick too much. Seasonal dick. Um, but that would be a good kind of interesting book to write. While we are. Um, Matt, look at your keyboard. What's wrong with my keyboard? Do you not own any Windex? Is oh, is it, just, it a filthy Oh, my keyboard? God. Oh, my God. There's like stuff. Look at all the stuff. Is that bad? That's pretty clean. Do you think uh, mine's, is mine like that? No, not at all. Oh, okay. Yeah. Nice. That's, that's not bad. You don't notice the stuff on, your, on, the key, on the keys? Well, it's black. That's why they make it black. Right. So you can't, so it doesn't look but when the, with Well, the, with the way the light's hitting it here, it's like somebody, all right. Yeah, uh, I think you're I catching it at a particularly bad angle. Yes, I am. Like, I think that's all right. That's <laughs> relatively, I think, as keyboards go. Yeah, let's see. Let's bring bring out your laptop. You got something to show us, Sharon? No, I mean, mine's in my bag. Oh, okay. I can pull it out, but... Let's see um, how, uh, do you have a story for us, Matt? Well, you know, while we are talking about computer surfaces and things, apparently, according to this new study, your fingers take time, take up to 30 seconds to f- come into full contact with a touchscreen. 30 Which, seconds? What? What does that yeah. mean? So in some cases, even 30 seconds or more after placing a dry finger on the glass, your skin is still adjusting, which can lead to problems using fingerprints to access phones and getting screens to respond to your touch. So oh, Michael, that makes sense. Michael Adams and Birgitta Zidek. Uh, that is a, yeah. Birgitta? Sure. Brig- that, that's Brigida? a lot of consonants. Why not? at the University of Birmingham and their team had two volunteers press a washed and dried index finger against a glass surface with increasing force. After two seconds, very little of the fingerprint was actually in direct contact with the glass. After a while, more of the fingerprint made contact. In most cases, the entire fingerprint was visible on the glass after about 30 seconds. The keratin on the outer layer of our skin is inflexible when dry, so when you first put a finger against the screen of a uh, smartphone... Only the high points of your fingerprint come into contact with it, but fingertips start to sweat quickly. The skin absorbs moisture, making the keratin more flexible, allowing your fingers to make more contact. Most in like allowing the actual valleys and not just the peaks to make contact. Yeah, I think so. So next generation touchscreens are already being designed designed to use ultrasonic vibrations that give the illusion that smooth glass has texture. The screen can be made to feel smoother or rougher by varying the frequency of vibration when you touch parts of it. The vibrations decrease the friction between skin and screen for a smoother glide, but they also mean a finger has only intermittent contact with a glass, which could lead to responsiveness problems. So developers say Adams may have to take his findings into account and make allowances for finger friction changes. By this logic, wouldn't my touchscreen, wouldn't my fingerprint ID thing take 30 seconds to identify me? Because it doesn't. I think it uses different technology, and this is... Do you use touchscreen to get into your phone? 
Um, yeah, don't you have to if you have a certain No, model? I don't. Mm-mm. I mean, I can. I can choose to have touchscreen or not, or have like the fingerprint ID yeah. or not. I, I chose not to. Yeah, sometimes it doesn't read it very well. You, you can also, I mean, whatever you have, you have the option of also doing the... Um, the pin number. Yeah, instead, I the do the pin, pin number instead. Yeah. Just because my hands are, I, it's, I don't know if you guys have ever talked about the science of this, but like my hands are always cold. Mm-hmm. They always say cold hand, warm heart. Uh, but I, you know, when I touch things, sometimes my screen doesn't respond and I have to go like this. Well, that's, well, that's, warm up that's my exactly what this study was talking about. So yeah. when, your, when your fingers are dry and cold, the keratin is less flexible. And then so it both, needs a second to sweat. And yeah. Yeah. So when you just rub it against your, I go like this, and then all of a sudden I can use my phone. Yeah. So that probably when you rub when you rub it against the fabric of your clothes like that, just then you're generating heat and probably allowing a little bit of sweat, a little bit of moisture to form in the fingers. Yeah. Slightly soften the keratin. Um, There's. We were talking about genetics before the ducks, and there is one of our listeners wrote in, and I think this is a point, a fair point worth making. Listener Chris Nelson wrote in. A little email that said, could you discuss alleles versus genes? Science in the popular press also talks about things like, often talks about things like obesity genes, when they mean obesity alleles. Uh, Allele means a specific sequence, while gene is a generic term for a region of DNA that encodes an RNA. Genes can have many different alleles, and the alleles are what can be associated with health benefits and risks. For the most part, we all have the same genes, but we have different alleles. Saying a gene is associated with a health risk or benefit is like saying car tires are associated with blowouts. It's kind of true, but which brand of tires do you mean? And when in the life of tire, and what tire pressure, and what the direction of the risk of blowout? Um, and don't also don't car tires have a function besides failing? Uh, yeah, I'm not, not sure about the analogy there, but uh, so um, gene is associated with a health risk. But the concept of alleles led, <clears throat> lends specifically to what people often hear about genes. I think there's a small semantic point, but worth making. And yeah, I, I think that's a fair point to make. Everyone, yeah, every like saying you have the blue eye, for example, saying you have the blue eyed genes. Well, you have everyone has eye color genes. You have the blue eyed allele of the okay. eye color genes. So it's a variant of a gene versus the gene itself. So the question or what the listener is is proposing is like, he's asking what your thoughts are about saying somebody has the obesity gene. That's why they're fat. They have obesity. Oh, no, they don't. They have the allele. Yeah. He's just saying it's a semantic. It's a minor point, but people using the wrong word. When yeah, they say gene, a, little, a lot of times they, they, they mean. They really mean, right. Yeah. Okay. I think that's a fair point worth making. Yeah, yeah doesn't mean that we won't consistently still say gene sure. on episodes to come, but when they do, listeners can flag that up in their mind and mentally re, uh, replace the word gene. But it would allele. be nice if everybody knew the distinction between the two. Right. But it's yeah. like sometimes you learn something like that and then you're like, well, now if I make a point of saying that, I'm going to sound like showy or pe- or it's going to be a conversation stopper. The same way, uh, did you see an episode of Silicon Valley when Thomas Middleditch's character talks about how the word flaccid is actually pronounced flaccid? <laughs> It's That's true. hysterical. I didn't know it's that. True. Yeah, but like, who's going to stop saying it the way they say it? Just because right. now that you know that you're like, well, fuck. Do I want to be right or just? <laughs> but if you're if you say it, it's going to stop whatever conversation. First of all, how often do any of us have to use the word flaccid in conversation? Right. But next time you do, if you say flaccid, it's going to be like record scratch. What did you say? <laughs> it, right. Yeah, everyone thought it was flaccid for some reason because the word placid is sort of similarly spelled, but it's but not. flaccid has two C's. I know, but I'm just saying, like, for some reason, people right. just got it in their heads that it should be pronounced that way. But it's, it's I've never known it to not be pronounced that way. No, I didn't know until... I, I Googled that, because I'm like, they wouldn't have written that in the show if it weren't true, and it's it's true. It's yeah, it's to too specific to have been made up. Yeah, yeah. Well, nerdy science, guys, I, uh, referring to genes versus alleles, mm-hmm. 
I don't think that anybody should feel bad about using that making that distinction and feeling like it's a conversation stopper because what what is wrong with being smart? Like, I feel like sometimes people are afraid to let people know how much they know. And I think it, it depends drives on the smugness with yeah. which is done. Yeah, 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 but you guys, neither one of you are smug and neither one of you are assholes. I could be an asshole uh, neither, neither, neither one of us is smug. Neither one of us is. <laughs> <laughs> That's the smug sorry. dick right there. All right. He's correcting you on. I, 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 sorry about mm. that. I, my grammar was off. <laughs> Now I sound like the dumb dumb. <laughs> no, Jesus, no, no, no. Plus, Brits have a different. You guys pluralize differently. Like you guys, we love, do sometimes have. Like talking about bands, you refer to them in the, in the plural always. Where Americans would sometimes, like, if you were to say, uh, what did I say? I said neither of you are smug. Neither of you is smug. Uh, did I say neither of you is smug? No, I didn't say that. I said neither of you are. Neither are. But it should be neither ne- is. Yes. Is it definitely that, or could it be both? It's, it could be both. I think it could be both. Now I'm doubting myself. But yeah, Neither but, are. But the Brits also pluralize differently. Like I think, almost exclusively, they'll refer to, even if a band is not like, like the Strokes is a band and it has plural in it. So you're going to say the Strokes are a good band, um, or uh, the Strokes. Oh, that's interesting. Have, what? Yeah, I hadn't thought about but that. If you but you do I like would. Pearl Jam or something, like a singular band, but Brits will always treat that as if it is a plural structure. Oh, well, like Pearl Jam. Jam. Pearl are Jam great. have Pearl Jam have arrived versus uh. Pearl Jam has arrived. Uh, Americans sometimes yeah, I would have, say Pearl like, Jam are, are a '90s band, not Pearl Jam is, is a, a 90s, '90s band. I think Americans will more often say "is." Yeah, yeah. we'll say "is." Mm-hmm. Yeah, because "jam" is singular. We go Pearl right, Jam. even though it refers to a group of people. Uh, that's, even, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hey, you know what else is an interesting thing in writing? What is that? Zero. The concept of zero. The concept Nothing of zero. Is. Very important. A seemingly trivial thing, which is extraordinarily important in the history of mathematics the mm-hmm. idea of zero because the idea of zero is an abstract concept you need a level of abstraction and a level of mathematical f- formalism rather than because you what, can't point to it you yeah you can't, can't uh, point yeah, point yeah. to point to zero things point to zero it's the absence of something and thinking of thinking of the absence of something to need a label and to have something that can then be used in mathematics it was important and it turns out, uh, this story that Justin brought, and someone else sent it in as well. I apologize, I can't find who else sent it in. But um, ancient Indians were using a symbol for zero centuries earlier than historians previously thought. Oh, new, wow. New research in the United Kingdom has revealed. Carbon dating performed by researchers at Oxford on the Bakshali manuscript, which is an ancient mathematical document, resulted in the unexpected discovery that originated in the 3rd or 4th century. Inscribed on 70 pieces of birch bark, the manuscript contains hundreds of zeros and was found by a farmer in 1881 in what is now Pakistan before being taken to the UK. It's particularly significant because it is only in India that the symbol, conveyed as a black dot, developed into a number in its own right, the hollow circle we use today. Marcus de Sotoy, professor of mathematics at Oxford, said the manuscript shows Indians were using the concept of zero long before other civilizations. This isn't theoretical text, this manuscript. It seems to be a practical document used by merchants to do calculations. Wow. And Marcus de Soto says, I'm absolutely staggered to find this is way earlier. We're talking about having carbon dated this. The manuscript is between 200 and 400 AD. I Uh, thought Syria was older than that. I didn't know. So, yeah. It's uh, now revealed it was written about... 
500 years earlier than scholars previously believed. But the creation of zero as a number in its own right, which evolved from the placeholder dot symbol found in this manuscript, was one of the greatest breakthroughs in the history of mathematics. Uh, Adam Spencer, the University of Sydney's mathematics ambassador, said zero historically has filled two roles, as a numerical symbol and as a mathematical concept. Historically, mathematics, these are two quite different things. Uh, Zero is a symbol. Um, How do you write 37 and 3007 as different numbers, Mr. Spencer said. Some civilizations didn't have a symbol. They just left a space, but that gets really confusing. The two, 307 looks like 3007 and so on. So different communities eventually stumbled upon the idea of a symbol for the number zero. The ancient Babylonians were using a symbol for nothing about 5,000 years ago. So here we go. So the idea of... So um, while the Mayans use a shell to denote nothing as a placeholder too. But the Indian use of a dot and the subsequent use of the mathematical concept of zero, or how we quantify nothing, opened up a world of mathematical discoveries. This caused real philosophical problems, for example, with the Greeks, and many cultures are said to have thought it was almost heretical to talk about the concept of zero as a number. Really? Apparently so. For something so trivial, zero is at the center of so many important parts of mathematics. People who do calculus at high school remember derivatives, the concept... The consequence of the infinitely small going to zero underpins all of calculus. And computer code is most basic as nothing but ones and zeros. And now as we confront quantum theories, we really face deep questions of can a space have absolutely nothing in it? Zero is everywhere. So I think you're right. So this, the the concept of zero as a symbol, as a placeholder for the for absence a, of something. In a base, you mean like just for that 3007 yeah. versus 37 example? Yeah, so, so like, like it said earlier in this article... Zero means two things. It's a placeholder symbol, as a, this numerical symbol, and as a mathematical concept. So the Babylonians, 5,000 years ago, they had the mathematical... They had the concept. Of zero as a of, number of it on its own. Yeah, the idea of, like, this thing represents the nothing. absence of something. This okay. is zero. The Babylonians, they had that. But the, the Indians, the extra step they had, was also having the symbol to represent a placeholder when you're writing out a number. Yeah. So you could represent... 37, 307, 3007 differently. It didn't say... Is it safe to assume that all these different cultures, though, were using base 10 or not? Had there been any Yeah, how do they know developed? what they're counting to? Well, I assume everyone developed base 10 just because of 10 fingers, but I don't know if right. some cultures had a different... I, I don't know, because some of them, I think, originally used things like base 12. Oh, really? I think so, because... I don't know much about the history of... Uh... Of bases. Because in certain cases, base 12 makes a lot more sense because it's far more divisible. Oh, I guess that's true. Yeah. But how would I mean, you... 12 is more f- divisible than 10? That's why, for example, there is um, 360 degrees in a circle. Oh. Yeah, 10, rather than, 10 is only Rather than 400, which would be a sort of... It, right. would, it would almost It would make a lot more sense from sort of a digital point of view to have it out of 400 because 400, each section is 100, 100, 100, right. 100. Each little... Uh, each little pie. Yeah, each... Yeah, exactly, quadrant. each quarter of a circle. But 360 is so much more divisible. It's, Got it. It has so many more factors. You can divide it into halves, thirds, sixths, um, tenths. tenths, and so on. So I think there might be some cultures that did that. There was a base 60 in ancient Sumeria. Oh, wow. Let's see if there's anything else I can find quickly. This episode base is all 60. about a hasty, hasty Googling of things. Yeah, there um, we go. Base 60, that, again... 
base 60 makes the same way that 360 in a circle just because it's divisible by so many different yeah, yeah. 60 yeah. has a lot of factors compared to 100 which has relatively few so if you're looking for something before you have a sort of digital counting system if you're looking for something that can be divided into lots of different things quite easily yeah so in a circle like we said you want to be able to think about it like you want to be able to divide this pie into different Pies. Lots of different pieces. Let's say cake rather than pie because it gets confusing when you're talking about pie and already talking about <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so when weird. You talk, when you want to yeah, divide yeah. this cake into lots of different segments yeah. or divide the circle into different or cut through it in different ways. How did humanity figure all this shit out? I know. It's like, crazy. it's crazy. It did take some thousands of years. Right. But there was a time when nobody knew how to count. We're like, we don't know what that is. How do we? Okay. You know, we don't have a word for that. Let's figure. I mean. Yeah. And there's really cool. Like there's different cultures that have different ways of counting. Uh. Like there's some Asian cultures that have probably multiple cultures that have you can count to ten on one hand, you know. Oh, different really? Things you do oh, wow. to like denote that like now there's now you're above five or you know keep track of like basically have bases but just with your fingers for like right. for like in markets when you want. Well, like, what's say, that this thing where they go like this and add? Or, Is it chism popping when they go like you know those kids and they go like this? They go what uh, forty five times uh, four hundred and two and they just go. Answers twenty five. Like they they do this thing with their hands. And then they Have do you the, not seen the that? Anna Kendrick cup song. Uh, no. <laughs> when I'm gone. No, they don't play the cups, but they okay. just use their fingers, and that's how they count. And it's very. I don't know this. Isn't it called chism pop? J- chism pop. I, I, I don't recognize chism that. Bop. But the thing. Counting fingers. Google it. Kids counting with fingers, and they but they count them on the table like this. They go like this, and they're like, and it's we. It's like chism bop. You're right. Chism bop. That's yeah. it. But I don't I've know. never heard that term. You've not? Na- oh my it's gosh, it's amazing. It's like uh, finger counting method used to perform basic mathematical operations. Uh, it was created in the 40s in Korea. And it's, with this method, it's possible to display all numbers from 0 to 99 with two hands. Isn't that crazy? If you, go, cool. if you click on video, if you're on Google and you can click on a video, watch a video of these kids. There's a video of someone Chisholm demonstrating Bach. it to Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show. It's amazing. Oh, there's a little girl. Yeah, they're all, they're all little kids who do Weird, it. Watch this shit. It's. Amazing. Ten plus five on the thumb. And the one. And the one. So that makes 26. Right. Now the next number to be added is 18. So she adds 10, ten. over here. Okay, we're going to put a link to this. But yeah. I had you got to put a this. link to that. But it does make you realize how in the West, or how, like, it is, it is a very basic, almost ape-like method of counting just to... To do nothing more sophisticated with our hands than just one finger one, is one two, number. Three, four. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Every finger represents one number, and, and you can't go it. any more sophisticated <laughs> than that. Yeah. Whereas they were like, oh, this is a 10, this is a 15, this is a... Tw-. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. And when you watch kids add, like, they have these competitions, they're so fast, but they just go like this, and then they figure out the answer. It's insane. But it's if it's so only cool. up to 100, can they, is it all just like... I mean, nothing would be that impressive if it was all just stuff on your basic times tables. They it must would be, be so impressive. I'm telling you why. I'll look it up. I'll check it yeah, out. Yeah, look it up because it's super impressive. This also reminds me of uh, that um, chapter in Malcolm Gladwell, I think in Outliers. He talks about like the reasons um, or some theories as to why uh, like Asian cultures might be, in general, better at math. And part of it's it's our stupid naming of numbers. Oh, wow. Like 11 and 12 and 13 and 14 and 15. Actually, all of the teens are, I guess, 13, 14, from 14 on, or 15 isn't five. Basically, like numbers should be, and in a lot of other languages, numbers are one through nine and then 10 and then 10 and one, 10 and two, 10 and three, 10 and four. Oh. Which makes, which is better because then when you're adding, it makes sense. Like, yeah, when I'm adding 10 and one, 
and um and and then twenty isn't called twenty. It's called like two tens and one, two tens and two, two tens and three, and then like math. The words are rep- representative of the concepts in a way that you don't have to like learn that ten and one is actually a thing we call eleven for no. For it's inscrutable. Why would, we, why would we call this thing eleven? It doesn't help you grasp the concept that it's a single ten and then a one. Where if you learned it as oh, ten and then, and one, and then, then when, when, when you adding, get past the weird name ones into the teens, you're sort of you're you're doing it the reverse way to the way you'd add up. Right. And then, but yeah, twenty should be two tens. Thirty should be three tens. You know, it's there's no reason to have these different words, and it makes kids if if kids aren't good with certain kinds of conceptual learning. That's an extra hurdle they have to overcome is like, we have dumb names that don't actually represent these concepts very well. Hey, you know what numerical concepts people they... have managed to get to grips with? What is that? Uh, the donation button on oh, the Squarespace PowerProbablyScience.com. Oh Always figure that out. It's amazing. Thank yes. you very much for the uh, monthly donations that have come through from John Clarici, Caroline Laco, Mark Williams, Emma Wilton, Leanne Mejia, and Peter Lipschi. Thank you, all of you. Um, you can go to probablyscience.com and click on that link and donate, and we really appreciate it. The yes, other indeed. way, you can financially help us out. I know a lot of you clicked on the um, uh, HelloFresh link from last week and used our offer code. So thank you, people who did that, because every time you use our sponsors, we have more chance of getting sponsors again in the future. Yeah, and, and again, as a reminder for that, if you go to HelloFresh.com and use probably 30, you'll get $30 off your first week of deliveries. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's 30 bucks is a lot. That's and a lot. Probably 30. And yeah. then for some really good food. And then the other way you can help us out is by spreading the word, tweeting, Facebooking, writing nice things about us on iTunes, subscribing if you're not already subscribing. Mm-hmm. That really does help. Do we have time for one more story? I do. Do you guys? Yeah. Let's do it. What do you want to do? Um, well, I think we were all talking about this story about... Um, about bringing someone out of a vegetative state? I've had a couple of Yeah, people. I thought we were going to do the spider oh, story. Oh, okay. uh, Which one? Wait, which story? Oh, there's two spider stories, aren't there? Oh, I want to do the spider story. More than a person being brought out of a 15-year vegetative state? Yeah. Spiders? Okay. Maybe the vegetable... I don't know. Should, what do you think week? your audience would rather listen to? I, I, you know, I have no idea. I really don't know what people... I mean... You know what? Obviously duck penises. Well, yeah, After of course. That, I don't know what how, long right. been re- how long have we been recording for, Andy? Um... I think it's only been about 50 minutes. I started this before we... Why the heck don't we do both stories? Let's do both stories. All right, let's do both stories. Okay, so we'll start with it. We'll we'll end with spiders because that'll make me happy. Yeah? Okay. No? Or whatever you have up on your laptop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Whatever you have on your laptop, we'll do that. All right, so Electric Zap. Quite a few people sent this story in. Electric Zap wakes, and that is in quotes because it's not entirely true, but wakes man after 15 years in a vegetative state. A man in France has regained some aspects of consciousness after being in a vegetative state for 15 years after surgeons used a technique to stimulate his brain via a nerve in the neck. The 35-year-old was diagnosed as being in this state, now referred to as unresponsive wakefulness, after a car accident in 2001. A person in this state might show involuntary movements but has no awareness of self or their environment. Repeated tests over the years showed no improvement in his condition. That was until Angela Sirigu of the French National Center for Scientific Research and her colleagues trialed a new technique that focuses on the vagus nerve. Um, so the vagus nerve, I think I'd heard of this before. This seems like a quiz answer. It's like a trivia answer. Oh, like trivia night? Yeah. Isn't tonight you guys' trivia night? We switched Every it. Every night is trivia oh, okay. night. Actually, there is Federal Bar. I might, if we finish, I might uh, oh, yeah. go over there. We, uh, don't don't come stalk and kill me, listeners, or come say hi. I don't know. Yeah. The vagus nerve runs from the brain to several areas of the body. 
It modulates the parasympathetic nervous system, which controls heart rate and lung function, amongst other processes. It connects directly or indirectly to brain areas, including the thalamus, a highly interconnected hub of neuroactivity, the amygdala, which regulates emotion, and the hippocampus, which is involved heavily in memories. The nerve also stimulates the locus coriolis, the brain region that controls the release of brain chemicals involved in arousal and alertness. So her team hypothesized that stimulating the vagus nerve would increase activity in brain regions that could help the man regain consciousness. I believe that's what happened, says Sirigu. That's just surprising to me because, as we all know, uh, what usually uh, what happens in the vagus nerve stays in the vagus nerve. Right. So, it did. Yeah. 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 <laughs> What's the difference between a vegetative state and being in a coma? Is there a difference? I don't know that. Yes, I think there is a difference. I think, in fact, yeah, definitely, because I think plenty of people have been in comas and are expected to recover. But when you're a vegetable, state, that's it. Yeah, or it's believed to be, yes. And also that it's believed generally that when you're in a coma, you don't currently have control over your functions, but you are potentially able to take in stimuli. Oh, Whereas right. Whereas in this vegetative state, like, yeah, there's effectively nothing going on. Okay, that's so, right, because I've heard stories about people talking to people while they were in a coma, and then the person comes out of the coma, and they'll say, yeah. I remember you reading to me. I don't oh actually God, know what the definition so of a coma specifically is, if you're able to look this up where I go through the rest of the story. Sure. But, so to test this idea, the team wrapped very thin electrodes around the nerve in the man's neck. He was monitored for a month before the nerve was stimulated. Then they treated him continuously over six months. Each treatment involved 30 seconds of stimulation, followed by five minutes of rest. The team started with an electrical current of 0.25 milliampers, uh, amperes, increasing by 0.25 ma a week until it got to one and a half milliampers. Why don't they just say milliamps? It's weird. Um, we didn't. Oh, maybe that's how you know. write it. Um, clinicians regularly monitor its changes in the man's behavior throughout the trial, while her Sirigu's team recorded EEG signals from the scalp before stimulation began and at points throughout the trial. They also scanned the man's brain using positron emission tomography, that's PET scanners, immediately after the electrodes were implanted and six months later. As soon as the stimulation started, the man began to open his eyes more often. After a month, he began to track people around the room with his eyes. That's crazy. He was even able to respond to requests to turn his head from one side to the other. He also attempted to follow an instruction to smile. What does an attempted smile look like? I don't know. I guess like you say, can you smile for us? And then you see some twitches in the muscles around the mouth. The team have not yet used these movements to ask him questions such as whether he is in any pain. His scores on the coma recovery scale. So maybe, okay, so maybe a persistent persistent vegetative state is a subset of coma. uh, Suggested he could now be defined as being in a minimally conscious state in which a person has partial conscious awareness. The man has not regained the ability to talk or walk, which he is unlikely to do given the large damage to his brain. The team are continuing to track his progress. The behavioral changes, which stabilized after the first month of stimulation, were backed up by changes in brain activity. Many areas of the cortex showed increased activity after the stimulation. We observed activity in those areas that were most targeted mostly targeted by the vagus nerve, says Sirigu. These included the parietal cortex, which is the key area for consciousness. People with lesions in this area often show impaired consciousness. So Stephen Lorries of the University of Liege in Belgium, who's worked ex- extensively with people with impaired consciousness, is happy to see the results, and says clinicians for way too long 
have considered patients of unresponsive wakefulness as just waiting to die, and that is not true. There is some capacity for plasticity, and this is one other study showing that there can be changes. I'm convinced that vagus nerve stimulation is a potential new treatment. But he does think the clinicians should have done more to establish a better baseline before the treatment. The team tested the man just three times over two months before stimulation began to establish he was unresponsively wakeful. Uh, Laurie's team has shown that accurate diagnosis requires five assessments within one to two weeks. It's known that these patients fluctuate. And so he cautions against generalizing about the results. We need to be careful. It's not that we can now implant any patient to give them back consciousness. The challenge is to understand why this works. It will not work in all patients. And he'd I mean, like to... I, I get they want to be careful with like, yeah, what the baseline was beforehand, but like 15 years of around-the-clock care from doctors, they can't also just ask doctors, like, what was like, the... Yeah. How, how conscious was this person? What sort of behavior did you see? I, I don't know, but there's be? still specific tests yeah, I think yeah, they need yeah, to yeah. do. Yeah, but I, I think that's bullshit. I think they should just zap everyone who's in a vegetative state and just see what happens. Because <laughs> well, don't you want to not be a vegetable anymore? They want to do randomized controlled trials before claiming that the technique is ready in clinical settings. Uh, Laurie says we shouldn't give false hope, but we also shouldn't give false despair. And the fate of people in this state remains a controversial subject. Just this week, the Court of Protection in England, Wales, ruled that the families of people in a vegetative state no longer need the court's permission to stop artificial feeding and let their loved ones die. They can now do so if families and doctors agree it is in the patient's best interest. Hmm. But for now, Sirigu remains hopeful that their technique will work on others in a similar state and is now studying more patients to see if the results can be replicated. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if... Even if this does get me to the point... If I were in that state and could get to the point where I could move my eye, eyes and respond to basic stimuli, but still be severely brain damaged, not really know what's going on. Yeah, I don't want to be dead. I'd want to, I'd want to I want to. think so. Yeah. Well, uh, so interesting story. So my aunt worked at the hospital where Terry Schiavo was. Do you remember this of story? Yes, yeah. Okay. So Should when... we recap for listeners? It was a while ago, wasn't it? It was, was it a while. 90s, yeah, recap. 2000s? It was. It was probably like five years ago, six years ago. I thought it was in the 90s for some reason. No. Oh, okay. no. Um, it was it, Terry Schiavo. She was in a vegetative state. She was, was she a vegetable or was she just like not there, but her parents... I don't think she had any sign of consciousness. She, no sign of consciousness. Her parents wanted to keep her alive. Her husband did not. Her her husband's like pull the plug this is this is awful for her she would never want this and the family some it just became this thing when all these people that were part of the religious right were protesting in front of the hospital so my aunt was like Sharon everybody at the hospital is like thinks that this woman needs to go to the you know rainbow bridge like it's cruel what they're doing yeah it was from 1990 to 2005 2005 it was then it was a long time so here's what was interesting is that she said that this is might be taking away from the story but Whenever the CNN was out there and they were like, protesters are here wanting to give Terry Schiavo life, there were like five people there. They would only show up when they knew the news oh, media was okay. there. There was not the spectacle of the 24-hour vigils that the news reported. Um, but yeah, it, it, but that's why everybody at the hospital was like, they should just let this woman go because, yeah. you know, I think I would want to be brought out of a vegetative state if I were still really young and I was only in the vegetative state for a couple of minutes and if they could guarantee that I wouldn't have brain damage. And of course, how could they? Like, yeah, that's... Right. Yeah, I wouldn't want to, you know, have to rely on someone taking care of me 24-7. I think that... Didn't Augie Smith's brother wake up from a coma right when they were about to... Oh, I don't know. Are this you story. serious? I don't yeah. know this story at all. Oh, I didn't know that. I don't know how much of it's been exaggerated for his stand-up act, but uh, he's like... He just talks about how awkward that conversation is. He's like, hey, buddy. He's like, coming back from the hospital gift shop. He's like, oh, sorry about just the one bagel. 
<laughs> Didn't think you were going to make it. Yeah. I should ask him about that before. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> sure no, that's interesting. That I, yeah. Sure. That's it's on crazy one of that they brought albums. this. Yeah. Are they going to keep, are they going to, I'm sure they're going to follow up a report on this guy that they shocked his vagus nerve and find out if he can speak or if he can function. It sounds like he, he will probably never speak. But it's what? just more, more response to stimulus than, than it was before. Oof. Yeah. Or stimuli. I guess. Um, well, you know who that else... wasn't as cheery as I was hoping. Who uh, else yeah, might no, be I waiting? thought that was going to be more of an up, up, uh, feel-good story. You know who else might be waiting to die? Who? Sacrificial virgin spiders. Oh, oh yeah, I want to hear spiders. about this. Sexy. We have lots of spiders in LA, listeners. We have, especially when it's hot outside, there's all kinds of spiders, and everybody wants to say every spider is a black widow, and it's not. <laughs> and I'm it not really, afraid of spiders. Yeah, suddenly everyone becomes... Uh, they all that, become spider That is yeah. definitely true. There's like, oh, that's a black... It happens to me all the time in my neighborhood. Like all my neighbors are like, "Oh, I had a black widow in my bathroom." I'm like, "You'd be you'd dead." Not. Well, no, you wouldn't. But um, well, if it bites not... you, you'd get sick. Yeah, I think that they're not usually that. It's a bad bite, but I don't think. Yeah, I don't uh, know. I've never been bit by a spider. So. Neither have I. Oh, well, that was a, I know. well, that was another story we had a while ago. Vintage, probably science was the story that most spider bites that people claim to have had oh, are not spider bites at all. Right, right. It's just like a go-to thing to blame when you have a weird skin thing. You're like, oh, There's a, just, just a lot of... It's Half the time, it's not an insect at all. It's just some rash that's appeared on your skin or you've just caught it somewhere or like a little cut or just some blemish that just appears as blemishes do from time to time. Right. And then at other times, it's an allergic reaction to something or a bite from a different insect. Right. I always or, assume it's or, a mosquito I guess spiders bite. Aren't insects, but... Yeah, why do we love urban legends about spiders? Like that thing that everyone says about how, how many of them you eat in your sleep in a year, which is just... Yeah, which is, again... Uh, yeah, urban legends. I mean, yeah, yeah. It, it could not even be true. So what's, yeah, that's what's out with by the a virgins? factor of all of them. Right. <laughs> so what's the virgin's uh, spider story? So this is in southern Africa. Uh, if you're a velvet spider, takes a good aunt... Take, takes a lot to be a good aunt if you're a velvet spider. In fact, it takes your internal organs. Uh, the life of a velvet spider ant. After tending aunt. lovingly to your sister's eggs and regurg- regurgitating food for newborns, um, they uh, it's time to offer yourself as the main course for the spiderlings to suck you dry. Oh my mm. god, are you serious? Yeah. The spiders literally start feeding on the female while she is alive, says Trina Builder at Aarhus University in Denmark. The spiderlings inject enzymes to dissolve her innards and suck out the semi-digestive fluids, leaving only the outer shell. But there is no apparent aggression. It looks as if females are almost inviting spiderlings to feed on them. Just yet another sacrifice of women make. Ah, uh, we are so caring. The things I do for my spider nieces and nephews. Yeah. That is crazy. This is... um. S. Uh, dubicola spiders. The S is a uh, Stegodiphus dubicola. Uh, they are social spiders that live in large communal nests. Hundreds co- cooperate to capture prey, defend the nests, and take care of the young. The nest is a dense retreat of silk and plant material with two-dimensional webs to catch prey. Each spider only lives for a year, so can only reproduce once. Talk about oh, like, wow. Si- single-dick spiders we're talking yeah. about. Yeah. Okay. One dick, one dick, and done. So many dicks in this episode. In a in a closely related species, S. lineatus, only mated females care for spiderlings. In these spiders, the act of mating seems to cause the females to care for other offspring as well as their own. Uh, an act called alloparenting. Uh, however, there are limits. They only let their own spiderlings eat them. Letting your kids eat you is a surprisingly common behavior known as matrophagy. <laughs> 
Builder and her colleagues wanted to find out whether unmated Estumicola females also perform alloparenting duties. They bred spiders in the lab and placed them in groups, each with two mated and three virgin females, along with some spiderlings to observe their behavior. Both the virgin and mated females performed all forms of alloparenting. They tended to egg sacs, regurgitated food for spiderlings, and finally offered themselves up as a meal. Oh my god. This extreme behavior makes sense because the spiders in the nest are all closely related and share genes. There are many more females than males, and only certain females reproduce. So the spiders in a colony are genetically similar. Are they allelely similar? <laughs> I guess so. The <laughs> investment in these offspring is an investment in her lifetime reproductive success, says Builder. The more gene copies she propagates to the next generation, the better. So providing your body as food is a sensible evolutionary solution. I suspect, um, says Jonathan Pruitt at the University of California, Santa Barbara, that females merely aren't capable of discriminating between the egg cases and someone else. The colony is, compo is composed of close kin. So even if females produce their own egg cases, there would still be a benefit of assisting a closely related relative. The spider's environment may also be a factor. Spiders in the genus... Uh, Stegodiphus occupy arid, arid life landscapes uh, such as deserts where prey is mostly scarce says Mar Solomon at the Israel Cohen Institute for Biological Control a female who sacrifices herself will be providing more food than they can find by foraging for prey that's depressing why don't they just move? I Jesus. know, right? I mean, like, like, don't. Yeah. Why are you staying there? They're going to eat you. You're a spider. You can go where you want to go. Yeah, you can just zip out of there like Spider-Man. Yeah. You don't think that was a, like the grand sacrifice? Like at the end of Armageddon? <laughs> what happens at the end of Armageddon? Again? I don't remember. Does one of them Did stay I even on the see Armageddon? To, yeah. to make sure that it... Does Bruce Willis stay on the Does, I think I think that's the case. It has been a decade plus since I fought, last saw the film. Does he give from space? Does he give a blessing to... Um, to Ben Affleck to to be with his daughter, I think so. I think he's like, do it for daddy. Okay, and then it explodes. Men are so gross. <laughs> um, <laughs> men are gross. We're not the ones offering our innards. I know. We're, we're trying to help everybody survive. <laughs> we're trying to keep us keep everybody alive. You think men are in all our gross things? The main motivating factor is just producing more people, right? Right, and then we have to take care of them. You guys leave and just keep making so we more can go people. Keep more, make more people. Yeah, mm, we don't want to make any more people. <laughs> I feel like the earth effort, is full. We grow ourselves a nice looking dick, right? <laughs> I grew this for you. Oh my god! Also, like your phone would be full of such a variety. Like the dick pics would have changed by the year. Oh you my know? god! So, totally. Like, you'd look back through your text exchange. It'd be like having person. to get new headshots done. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. you got to get a new dick pic done because I, my old dick pic, my dick doesn't look like that anymore. Yeah, like mm -hmm. my dick—that's not the playing age of my new dick. Imagine your dick aging better than you. Yeah, <laughs> that would be crazy. I just would be so crazy if you like shed like a snake and then got a new penis every year. That would be so crazy. And it sometimes and and if our vaginas evolved, we were like, you know what? I want a guy who's got a curly cue. I want something that looks like a yeah. question mark. Yeah, and then the guys are like, you know, some years are good, some years not so good. <laughs> And then what if you're not near a man that knows that you're signaling that you want a question mark, so your vagina turns into a question mark, and then so you don't have a guy who matches the, your vagina. Yeah, Do you know what, what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, or like yeah, you're yeah. clockwise and she's counterclockwise. Yeah, because those ducks grow dicks because they know the vagina is growing a certain way, so they're, well, in, that, they're intuitive. What I understand is like a, a corkscrew doesn't fit into any shape 
just being thrust directly. It would only fit if you. If as you're the thing, twirling. If you're twirling as you're going into it, is there, there's no way that's happening. Is there that the ducks are like spinning around in the water? Because no, you know I mean? that's like, so there's weird. There's no shape that a corkscrew inserts straight into. No. Yeah, I don't how does know that how make any works. sense? I don't know. Yeah. I know we have some zoologists who listen to this show. Well, maybe they must know because you know what? When maybe we they're use on a-, a pivot. Maybe the dick has like a ball bearings at the base. <laughs> the balls are. <laughs> or maybe it goes in easily because it's already twisted. Because like when we use a corkscrew, we're going into cork where there's no hole. What yeah. if there's already a corkscrew yeah, hole, hole in it? Whole, it might. You if might there be were able to already just- a corkscrew hole. Think about it. It would not push in. It has it to would rotate have to be though. Spinning. It still has to twist. You can't. So even with a corkscrew going into a cork, you can't just push it straight down. It has to twist. But the inside of the vagina is malleable. So I think it actually would go if in If it were easily. that malleable, then a straight dick would work too. Right, physics but she's... don't work. The physics... Listen, if you guys know about curl dicks, write in. I don't know. For probably some reason, I feel like it come. might be all right. Yeah, I don't probably know. science. I definitely want these emails that will be coming in. <laughs> the duck dick emails? Yeah. yeah. Like, how does it work? How does that work? Because, you know, a duck can't spin on top of, I mean, it you know. could, and maybe it could there in the water. Maybe when you watch a mate, it goes, and then it, like as it comes out, it's, it's like constantly doing like clockwise, counterclockwise, in, out. Right. Maybe. That's a lot for a duck to do in. that Once and then in, push out in. and then. Oh, maybe that's what, maybe that's the whole thing is like, it just has to get in once and then it's just like locked And in then place. that's it. Yeah. Like, Isn't you that know, with dogs, what happens with dogs? Well, this me? is, I heard this, what happens with cats. And I hear the reason that cats scream and it's so painful. But, well, first of all, they're being raped. Right. Sure. But that the cat penis, when it's inserted into a girl, that it has like. Oh, these barbs. Yeah, it has barbs. Yep. I believe that is true. What's the advantage of a barb? Stays barb in. Stays in so they oh. can make the kittens. Oh. Yeah, oh. I know. But like an actually like like an arrow, like how an arrow can't pull out. Right. Like that. Like it's the, yes. the opposite direction from how it goes in so it can't come out until. Correct. And then the barbs just like retract once it's done. I think so. Listen, if you guys know about animal dicks, we need to hear from you. You can Skype yeah. in during Well, I guess episode. also uh, it becomes less it becomes less erect. Becomes more flaxid. <laughs> flaxid, yes. Yeah, so good was, job. Was, good job. And so the diameter would would shrink, and maybe then the barbs would sort of be pulled push away naturally. In for a second, and get them out of the way. The barbs would be pulled in away more naturally, so it would be easiest for it to come out. I'm going to ask my cat. Um, <laughs> he's a guy. He might know. But also, um, I'm now thinking about the duck dick. The duck. <laughs> let's say the duck dick starts off only semi erect. And sort of erects itself into the female. So maybe in that process, it sort of has the natural curl in it, but it sort of grows round. Okay, okay. Has like a build. Does anyone? But does right? It it makes sense. But does that actually happen in nature? We're just trying to guess. We're just trying to figure out how this corkscrew makes sense. It doesn't. It doesn't doesn't make sense. sense. No, it uh, doesn't. Because if, 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 if listeners, if you Google this picture and you look at this duck's penis, straight up corkscrew. It is a straight up corkscrew. But it does have flexibility in it. It could. I'm trying to picture what you're picturing without 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 something actually having to pivot, and I can't I can't wrap my head around it, or my dick for that matter. No, hang on, it would. You could, if if it is corkscrew shaped, you can you can with only a marginal rotation drop something corkscrew shaped into something corkscrew shaped. But there, were, it's still some rotation has to happen. Maybe the dick maybe the dick has enough ability to to spin on its own axis. <laughs> Let's let's seriously. Put I mean, no, seriously, no, no, no. Listen, I, I know try we must it. have some. Listeners I'm now thinking about the geometry of this, and I zoologists think... and could talk about this. We must. What if you were to take a take a wine cork, uh, a, a a wine screw, a, a woody a corkscrew, mm-hmm. and you put it in something soft like a cotton ball and see what happens? And maybe that might answer the question. But I'm saying, if if there was anything analogous to the cotton ball, then it would not have actually prevented. It wouldn't be 
a vagina that would necessitate some crazy dick because right. anything can right. go into it. You're so right. then how does this all make sense? I don't know. I want to get back to this. I don't want to be too duck dick obsessed, but I also want to talk to somebody who can answer this question. So yeah, listeners, uh, tweet us at probably science or email probably science at gmail.com. If you are a zoologist or no one or know someone who's just into duck dicks. Hey, Sharon. Yeah. Where can our listeners find out more about you and what you do? Oh my gosh. You can go to my website. I am Sharon Houston.com. Uh, I have an album coming out on the 18th of October called Sharan Sharan. Love for you Great to buy album it. Cover. I like the artwork. Thank you. It's uh, listen, I, I, I like to go go big go mm-hmm. big or go home uh, uh, yeah but if you go to my website you can see where I'm performing and what I'm up to and all that fun stuff and you can follow me on Instagram at Sharon Houston and it's Houston like the city in Texas nice not Angelica not not Angelica shouldn't even put that thought in the listeners heads well listen that's what everybody does they spell it Houston like John Houston Angelica really? Houston and then I don't want to say like Whitney because she's dead yeah so now I say Houston like the city in yeah. Texas and then they look at me strange and they still don't know how to spell it and then uh, what's the, and then uh, uh, could you say how don't they pronounce it Houston? The they pronounce it Houston in, in New York. In New York yeah, in New York, so I would yeah, always yeah. say Houston like Houston Street, Houston yeah. like Houston Street. And they'd go, oh yeah, <laughs> it's so um, oh yeah. You can find us at Probably Science uh, individually at Andy T Wood and at Matt Kirshen, and we're going to be at Podfest. Yes, Podfest in a couple of weeks' time. Come and find us there. Let me make sure I have the right URL. I believe. Wait, where's it going to be this year? It's, it's at the downtown. Downtown. So go to nice. LAPodfest.com. You can get tickets. Um, some really great shows besides ours, like My Favorite Murder, um, Love It or Leave It with John Lovett from. Um, I love Odyssey him so much. Um, they just did one at the Improv. Oh, nice. I haven't yeah. seen that. Chapo Trap House. So many great podcasts. And ours is happening on Saturday, October. Is it seventh, Matt? Uh, yeah, whatever the Saturday up. is. This, at 2 p.m. At the 2 Saturday PM. Podfest. Again, it's at the it's at the Biltmore, the historic Biltmore downtown, which is where they used to have the Oscars back yeah. in the 30s. And we are going to be joined by, amongst others, probably science alum Brooks Whelan. Mm-hmm. And Brooks is going to be joining us. And we'll have a great science guest who will be a surprise for you. Ooh, I'm looking at the rest of these. Yeah, so many great podcasts. Never Not Funny is going to be there. Todd Glass Show, Doug Loves Movies. I um, love Never Not Funny. Yeah, Pardo's the best. Jackie and Lori, Allison Rosen. Heavy hitters, guys. Come on, the dollop. Um, so yeah, come on down to LA Podfest and and say hi. Get your tickets. And out. you can get tickets. We'll link to the tickets in the show notes of this. So get that. Yep, yep. And um, thank you so much for listening, everybody. We will see you next week. Thanks for having me, you guys. Thanks for joining us. Bye.